There was a wide range of questions. It's interesting to see what people really have been thinking about. (laughs) In between the phrases. These are the true phrases. (laughs) I've put some questions together that at first glance they might not seem related, but there's actually a, a thread of relationship. Can one do the equanimity practice with people towards whom one's feel towards whom one feels desire? It seems helpful. And then another question, is there another emerging practice that will be taught to complement metta and vipassana? If as you're doing the equanimity and you do it towards a person for whom you feel desire and you feel your mind going in the direction of greater equanimity, that's great. If you feel your mind going in the direction of greater desire, then there's another kind of meditation. Uh, one of the, the amazing things about the Buddhist teaching, when you give it some study, is the tremendous range of techniques and skillful means that he used for different kinds of people, and for people uh, in, different, in different mental circumstances. So actually, the, the meditation that's most often taught uh, for people who suffer from overwhelming desire is the meditation on the 32 parts of the body. <laughs> And there's quite a, quite a classical and traditional method for doing this of visualizing part by part hair of the head, hair of the body, nails, teeth, skin. And you go progressively inward to the organs and the pus and the blood. And, and it seems to have a rather salutary effect. <laughs> <laughs> On the lusting mind. <laughs> That too, it, it, it's actually quite interesting because, I mean, on this, when we just hear about it, it's, oh, that really seems disgusting. <laughs> uh, but each of these practices actually uh, not only addresses a particular conditioning of the mind, they all very much strengthen the power of concentration. And so it's just to see how through many different doors, we can enter the realm of understanding, taming the mind, coming to a place of stillness where we can really see the essential nature and come to freedom. You know, and so there are many ways, depending on temperament. What about the creatures? Do they also have karma? Are they evolving too? Do they have choice? My understanding was that we humans were stewards of the earth, 
responsible for the happiness of other life forms without consciousness. According to the Buddhist idea of things, uh, and even quite a just common sense view, animals very much have consciousness, you know, and feelings and awareness and responses and reactions. And so, karma is being created in that realm also. One of the reasons the animal realm is considered one of the lower realms, whereas the human realm is considered one of the happy realms of existence, is that in animal consciousness, um, there's really not much mindfulness happening. working on quite an instinctive level of mind, without that option that that mindfulness gives of considering whether something is skillful or unskillful. And out of that moment of wise consideration, the freedom and the ability to make choices. And that's what's so precious about this human condition and about the opportunity to develop a mindfulness which really is seeing moment to moment what's happening. What's also interesting is watching our own lives and just seeing the range of the range of response that we have, you know, to different life situations, to watch when we're really on automatic, when we're just moving out of habit and out of conditioning without much mindfulness of what we're doing. Desire arises, hand in the refrigerator. You know, and how often does that happen? And yet we also, I think, become increasingly aware that mindfulness, if we can bring it to bear on our actions throughout the day, open up possibilities of real freedom of choice. If we're mindful of that intention, or different intentions throughout the day, we can choose. We can bring the discriminating wisdom to bear on that action. And that's the great gift that we have. So all the realms of existence, animals included, are still working within the sphere or domain of karma. Because consciousness is there, action is there, but it's really only when there's mindfulness that we begin to exercise the possibility of freedom. I have a diagnosis of a terminal disease. Can you please speak about approaching death with metta? I think that for all of us, in considering approaching death, there are two two important uh, aspects of the mind to work with. One is that softening of the mind and heart as a way of both dealing with and helping to overcome fear 
because for many people there is a strong fear of death or fear of the unknown, fear of uncertainty. You know, when we're approaching something that is as mysterious as death seems to us, can very often arouse fear in the mind. When the Buddha first taught the metta meditation, the circumstances in which he taught it was precisely, it was to a group of monks who were in a situation that was very fearful. And he taught it as the specific antidote to the state of mind of fear. And we can get a sense of that. You know, as the metta becomes strong, as we really learn to reside in that place of wishing well for ourselves, for other beings, as we rest in the simplicity and the strength of that feeling, when metta is there, fear is not there. And the stronger the metta, the stronger this loving-kindness, it really stands as a bedrock for us. And so there's a, there's a tremendous strength that comes from cultivating this deeply. It's a refuge. Metta becomes a refuge. I think the second aspect that's very important, in addition to this softening of our minds and freeing our minds from fear, is developing a very strong observing power of mind. So that as we're going through this process, and whether it's the process of our life or the process of our dying, which is really the same thing, can we be in the place of just observing? Observing from balance, observing from peace, observing from softness, just watching, watching this mystery unfolding. The alternative, which we experience a lot in our lives, is getting caught up and being identified with all the thoughts, all the emotions, all the feelings, all the reactions to body states. And probably or often at the time of death, there may be some physical suffering, most likely will be. Have we trained ourselves to keep a soft mind with that, a mind that can be with it in an open way, in a way that's observing and watching carefully so that we're really staying as conscious as we can? Or will we be lost in the habitual reactions you know, of aversion, of hatred, of fear, whatever? So it's this combination of metta and mindfulness, which I think are the, the two, key, two key elements. One of the things that inspires me a lot in practice, especially in times of difficulty, whether it's you know, emotional storms that are happening or, or working with a lot of pain in the body, one of the things that inspires me often in my practice is thinking of practice as training for dying. You know, because it probably will be difficult. Okay, so here we are in a situation where difficulties arise this is our training. And we see, we can really see where we are and what we need to develop. So 
So the strengthening of the metta and the mindfulness, I think, are really what are going to provide a great strength. So another question related to death. How does a Buddhist reconcile the fairness and lawfulness of the karma doctrine with the importance placed upon the state of mind at the moment of death in conditioning the rebirth, which seems pretty arbitrary to me, at least in some cases. There is quite a bit of emphasis placed on the importance of the moment of dying as reconditioning the moment of rebirth consciousness. But what happens at the moment of death is not arbitrary. What happens at the moment of death has actually been conditioned through the law of karma by how we've lived our lives. Uh, And there is there is a teaching about what kinds of mind states take precedence at the time of death. If there is a very strong action that we've done, and the Buddha listed some things which were called weighty karma, and they're both wholesome and unwholesome weighty karma, they take precedence. If we've done any of those things, they are going to determine our next birth. Such Some of the unwholesome weighty karma is having killed one's mother or father, or killed a fully enlightened being, things like that. The weighty wholesome karma is having realized any of the stages of enlightenment or attained to jhana, these absorption states of concentration. Those are very powerful karmic actions. So if we've done that, they are going to determine the rebirth. If we have not done any of those actions, either wholesome or unwholesome. Then, I can't remember the exact order. (laughs) So I'll tell you what they are and know that the order may be uh, reversed in two cases. One is called habitual karma. And that is, if we've done actions over and over again in our lives, that is what's going to arise in the moment of death as a sign, as an image. And that habitual karma is going to take uh, precedence at that time and recondition birth. So, for example, if you've done a lot of sitting in your life, you know, just, and as you're dying, you might get this image of your zafu. You know? <laughs> with yourself sitting in full lotus and or if you've done some other, if you've done a lot of killing in your life you know you might get an image of the gun or the knife or whatever and so the habitual karma is a very strong very strongly conditioning force which is why there's so much uh, importance placed 
on seeing that our actions in each moment are, act, are building a force. They're building a habitual tendency. And so we should take care with our actions. There's the karma of what we just happen to be thinking at the moment of death. And this is the reason why in being with dying people, it's helpful to surround them in an environment that's peaceful, that's conducive to their remembering their good actions. Because just the kind of mind state that may come up due to the circumstances at the time of death may condition rebirth. And the last one is just random karma. Any action that we may have done you know, at any time, if none of the others are present or strong, any action may come up in that moment. And so it's not accidental. It's, there's a lawful progression to this. I think for most of us, the habitual karma is the key. Because if we have practiced wholesome states of mind, like metta, like mindfulness, like generosity, practicing the precepts, if that has become so strong in our minds, that force, that habitual karma is going to be this protection. It's going to be this place of refuge in the moment of dying. The equanimity meditation brings me to a place of forgiveness and humility in the sense of feeling just the right size. I don't seem to read much or hear much about humility. Does it have a place in the practice? Is it a result of or fruit of equanimity? Humility is a very interesting state. And it's intimately linked, I think, in the deepest way to the understanding of selflessness. Because if we're feeling very humble and we have that feeling, I really feel humble. (laughs) Already it's not true humility because It's creating an identification with that state, creating the sense of self in that identification. Someone expressed very pithily, I think, what is the essence of humility. It's a writer who who writes under the name of Wei Wu Wei. He's actually an Englishman, I think, living in Hong Kong and studied a lot of the Chinese Buddha Dharma and Taoist teachings. He wrote many wonderful books. One of the things he said was that humility is the absence of anyone to be proud. And that is, I think, a true humility because it's invisible. There's no one there to be proud or to be humble. There's just phenomena arising and vanishing. And we can see that, you know, when we're sitting and you're just with what's happening, whether it's a repetition of the phrases or if you're doing Vipassana and watching the breath. And there's just that being with phenomena coming and going. There's no sense of I, there's no sense of self. 
And in that emptiness of self is the true humility. question that keeps coming to mind all week. I called it the field mouse dilemma. When I sent metta to all beings as part of our group, I saw a field mouse pursued by a hawk. Wishing the field mouse safety seemed gratuitous. They seemed to be doing what I think of as doing their dharma. Then when I was doing the equanimity meditation, I saw them again and they acknowledged me as if saying, we know. We are being a hawk and a field mouse. Happiness, as I think of it, seems irrelevant here. And then I ask myself, what is my dharma? Or rather, how can I know my dharma? And how can I do it completely? And what will doing it completely have to do with happiness or safety or love? I'd appreciate your comments. (laughs) It gave me... Pause for thought. (laughs) I think there are two parts to this question. One part is that as we are cultivating these feelings of love or compassion or sympathetic joy or equanimity and using the phrases be happy, be safe, whatever, What we're doing essentially is creating a particular kind of relationship between ourselves and other beings. And so that's independent of what the field mouse should be doing and what the hawk should be doing because they are going to be following their own dharma. And sometimes happiness for the hawk is suffering for the field mouse. You know, and so as we're doing these phrases, it's not to imagine we're creating a world where all beings will be equally happy all the time. Because that clearly is not what's going to happen. It's not the nature of things. It's not the law of things. So that's not the purpose. That's not the intent behind cultivating these feelings. Rather, it is as we wish happiness for the field mouse and happiness for the hawk and happiness for all beings, what we're doing is cultivating a relationship between ourselves and all other beings and it's a relationship of loving care or a relationship of equanimity. And so I think It's just to come back to the understanding that it's these feelings within ourselves that are being strengthened. They, in turn, will impact how we're acting, how we're relating to all other beings. And so in that that sense, they are going to impact the world around us. I think less as a result of our thoughts more as the result of how the feelings we have 
in relationship to other beings condition our actions. And that's why this is so powerful. The Buddha, in one one, uh, discourse, he described different powers of wholesome actions. Just to... This was, this was a whole long discourse, but to abbreviate it. He said that generosity, an act of giving, is tremendously powerful. And it's made more powerful by the purity of the receiver. It's like planting seeds in a very fertile field. And so to give something to the Buddha himself, for example or to enlighten beings. It's very it's a potent act and brings great result. He said many more much more fruitful than giving or offering food to the Buddha and the whole order of enlightened beings is to be absorbed for one moment in the feeling of loving kindness. That's that's quite a strong statement. I mean, really. Okay, so what is he talking about? Why is that so powerful? Because the absorption for one minute, for one moment, in the feeling of genuine love, genuine metta, itself becomes the seed or the impetus for countless loving acts. And it conditions how we begin to relate to ourselves and to other people. And so it becomes this wellspring of wholesome action for us. And so the karmic fruit is enormous of that. Went on to say that even more powerful than this moment of metta, of loving kindness, is one moment of clearly seeing the arising and passing of phenomena. Really deeply seeing that all conditioned phenomena are arising and vanishing. Because in the seeing of that, we are freeing ourselves from attachment, from grasping to any of this as being I, as being self. Because we see for ourselves, not theoretically, that every moment is just arising and disappearing. So this gives you some idea that the fruit of the practice is tremendously beneficial and tremendously conducive for our well-being. The second part of the question has to do with understanding what one's own dharma is. And in this sense, the word dharma means lawful activity or appropriate activity for one's being, just like the hawk has its dharma, to fly and catch field mice. And the field, field mouse has its dharma. What is ours? I think there are different levels to understanding this. On a conventional level, we each have a dharma that's appropriate to our particular situation. You might have a dharma as a husband or a wife or a parent or a child or a employee or a student or whatever. And each one of those roles has a particular way of doing it with excellence. 
And it's worth considering the roles that we're in, the various roles, and how we can make the manifestation of that role really, uh, really excellent and work towards that. Because that itself brings a tremendous satisfaction in our lives. There's a deeper meaning or a deeper way of understanding what our Dharma is which goes beyond our individual differences and differences of situation. And that is to see that the deepest Dharma that we have is bringing ourselves to perfection. Perfecting the qualities of our heart and mind. And that's universal. And that's what this whole path is about. It's about the transformation of consciousness. It's about the purifying of the mind of those forces in ourselves and in the world which create suffering. So it's the purification of consciousness, of greed, of hatred, of ignorance, of fear, of envy, of jealousy, of all those qualities which are a downward force. And that's the most fundamental dharma that we all have. When we understand that and connect with that, it gives a tremendous sense of purpose and meaning in our lives, quite independent of our particular life choices. We can be doing anything and working to perfect our minds. It's really beautiful in, in my early years of practice in India, one of my teachers, he was living in Bodhgaya, uh, which is where the Buddha was enlightened. It's a very small village, although it has, has many beautiful temples. And as we'd be walking through the village, he would often point out to me some very simple village people who were his students and who had attained to high stages of enlightenment. And it was so inspiring to me because from the outside, you'd never, just, you'd never know. <laughs> you know, they just look like a little old Indian lady or a little old Indian man kind of going around selling bananas. Or, you know, and just appreciating the fact that it doesn't matter. You know, we share this basic commonality of being alive and having a mind and heart of being a mind and heart. And so our dharma is bringing it to excellence, bringing it to perfection. When we have that sense, it really gives this wonderful sense of direction in our lives, sense of purpose. It gives us a context in which we can hold all of our actions, in which we can measure our actions. Is this helping this perfection? Or is it hindering it? The bodily rapture that I've been getting with concentration sometimes lately turns very easily into sexual feeling for me. Is this a usual kind of experience? What can I do about it? 
think there are two ways to look at this and understand this. You may have noticed that, like the tr- this tradition of Buddhism, my mind works in lists. <laughs> it's always two of this and three of this. And <laughs> I don't know where they come from. It's just kind of coming out. <laughs> but <laughs> number one. <laughs> One of the interesting discoveries for me in practice has been the discovery or the, the ongoing discovery and opening to this mind-body as being an energy system. You know, in the beginning of practice, we're really working with sort of a heavy or quite a heavy feeling of the solidity of the body. But as practice goes on and as the concentration deepens, the solidity, our experience of the solidity disappears. We really begin to feel and experience this as an energy flow. Okay, so one way of understanding this energy flow is that depending on which energy center we're focusing on, we're going to experience this energy in different ways. And so if we're experiencing it through sexual centers, we'll feel it as sexual energy. If we feel it through our heart center, we're going to feel it as that kind of energy. We feel it up the crown of our head, we're going to feel it as that kind of energy. What was quite surprising for me was to realize that it's all the same energy. They're not different things. It's the same thing. Felt differently, depending on where we happen to be feeling it. Because of the very enticing um, and familiar pleasure of sexual energy, often when we're experiencing that, unless we're very mindful, very easy to get caught up in greed and desire and wanting because of the pleasure of it. If that's happening, what's very helpful is just to raise the energy, to raise the attention of where we're feeling the energy, to begin to feel it here, or or up in the higher centers. Um, We can also get attached to the pleasure of that as well. That's the more subtle attachment. So that's one way of understanding what's happening and why we feel... uh, different kinds of energy as the concentration deepens. Okay, number two. There's there's another way of understanding this. And that is that some kinds of energy that we feel in the body, we feel at certain levels. You could call it certain, certain frequencies. As we practice and as the concentration gets finer, the frequency of the energy gets finer. So we keep, it's like we keep raising the frequency until the feeling or the experience is very smooth, extremely smooth, and sometimes actually disappears entirely 
as a physical phenomenon. It can get so refined that all we're aware of is the flow of consciousness. And so there's this whole progression as our practice goes on of, I don't know, the coarser frequency or lower frequency of energy. It's in the lower reaches of the frequency that sexual desire is happening. As it gets more and more refined, it's like we're experiencing this just in a, in a much finer way, which doesn't take form, it doesn't take expression as sexual energy. No, it's much finer. There's an interesting corollary to this, which is not immediately apparent. It really is a subtlety of practice. The general direction that the practice is going in is starting with great awareness of pleasant feelings and unpleasant feelings. And and sexual energy is one of the very pleasant feelings we feel. There are many. There are many other kinds of pleasant, rapturous feelings. As the frequency gets higher and more refined, there's this development towards experiencing more and more neutral feeling rather than pleasant feeling. And what's interesting is that neutral feeling is actually a more enjoyable state than happy feeling. And that comes as a bit of a surprise because we we tend to think neutral feeling is kind of uninteresting, but really it's more refined. You know, that, that compared to neutral feeling, pleasant feeling is gross. This is the same move that we experience as we go through the levels of concentration with metta and compassion and mudita, all of which can have tremendously pleasant feelings associated, especially as the rapture factor begins to grow and the happiness factor but the, f- the feeling associated with equanimity is a neutral feeling. And that's a deeper place, and an actual place of greater, greater well-being, greater enjoyment. And so it's, it's I hope you get the idea in all this that it's just interesting. <laughs> you know, it's like our beings are this laboratory, this, this fantastic laboratory of body and mind. And it's the basic energy that has created the world. It's right here. The Buddha often referred to, in the text it's called this fathom long body. I don't know how long a fathom is, but within this fathom long body, he said, the whole world exists. And it's true. And so really what I see us doing is just developing the tools, developing the strengths of mind so that we can explore it. And as we develop the strength, it becomes endlessly fascinating. This is the other side.
Could you please talk about body pain, boredom, doubt, and distraction? <laughs> That's great. Kind of bring it all down <laughs> to this reality. <laughs> Body pain is a big part of everybody's path. I mean, if we have a body, there's going to be pain. <laughs> and so a lot of what we do in practice is to learn about pain. More so in Vipassana than in the metta. In metta practice, we tend to leave it aside as best we can, shift position if it gets too strong. We're not really dealing with it directly. In Vipassana, in the mindfulness practice, we'll be getting into ways of looking very directly and deeply and opening to the nature of pain. It's tremendously revealing because we see so much conditioning in our mind around pain. There's aversion, there's fear, there's condemning, there's a lot of different ways we relate to it that are not helpful, that are not actually conducive to mental balance. And so a lot of our practice is to work with the pain and learn how to open it, learn how to go into it. Um, That itself is a tremendously strengthening part of what we do because in our lives, the pain is... How we relate to the pain is symptomatic of how we relate to all unpleasant things in our lives, whether it's, whether it's uncomfortable physical phenomena, uncomfortable emotions, uncomfortable situations. If something is painful, what are the ways we deal with it? We can see that very directly when we sit and watch pain in our body. And it's really wonderful to see the transformation that begins to take place with practice. When I first began sitting, I, could, I couldn't sit ten minutes, you know, across like the pain was too excruciating. And so I'd be moving and changing. And, and then I started building great thrones to sit on. And <laughs> I, you know, because first I start on a chair and then because I'm so tall, a regular chair is nearly big enough. And so then I made, put the chair on bricks. <laughs> and then the mosquitoes were bothering me, so I put this mosquito net over the chair. <laughs> Every once in a while, my teacher would come into where I was sitting. <laughs> I was really embarrassed. <laughs> but slowly... <laughs> I, I didn't have much tolerance <laughs> for pain. And it was, it's just been really interesting to watch you know, the gradual development of the ability to sit with it. Just as the mind gets stronger and less fearful and learns how to actually relax into it rather than tighten against it, we develop a strength, we develop a great capacity. This has tremendous bearing in our lives and just our ability to be with painful situations. Um, So it's a big part. Boredom, doubt, and distraction, there's much to say about all of that, but there's one key element. 
And it has a lot to do with what we've been practicing this week and we'll be practicing in the Vipassana as well. And that is training our mind to stay close to the object. If the mind is close, there's not boredom and there's not distraction. But our mind is not in the habit of staying close to the object. We can have, whether the object is a phrase or the breath or a sensation, whatever, we're in the habit of perhaps being aware of it, but from way back here, half-heartedly, not fully on it, fully covering it. When we're removed from the object, that's when the mind gets bored. That's when it gets restless, that's when it gets distracted. And so our practice over and over again is coming in close. That's what we've talked about, this aiming and sustaining. Aiming the mind so it really hits and connects and makes contact with the object. And then sustaining the attention. And we need to do that over and over and over again. With practice, the mind gets in the habit of keeping that close attention. At that point, there's rarely boredom. And there's rarely great restlessness. It's a a real turning point in the practice. Um, And that comes really just from building up this momentum of close attention. So that's the effort that we need to make. Whenever we see that the mind is distant, not getting upset about it, not judging, not going on a whole trip. Just we see that the mind is distant, come back close, come in close again. This is a a very important part of what we're doing, part of the training. It leads to a level of concentration called access concentration, which is a level of concentration where the mind is resting easily and staying easily with the object. It doesn't mean that it never wanders, but it wanders, but naturally falls back to the object instead of before that level wandering and we have to drag it back to the object. So now we're in the process of dragging. (laughs) But we do it and we do it and we do it and then at a certain point, it clicks. Sort of like learning to ride a bicycle. In the beginning, you're falling off on one side and the other side until you just find the balance and then it's easy. And that's what happens in the meditation. I find that as the week ends, I am still obsessing over a hostile man with whom I work. He is verbally abusive towards me. And while I have this, and while I have this week repeatedly extended metta towards him, I really am uncertain what to do when he once again treats me with hostility. I have never responded to his anger with anger. Sometimes his hostility comes in the form of icy coldness or opposing any ideas I present. Is verbally adept and misuses the skill. I very much want to return to work with some idea of how to handle this harmful man so I don't go home hurt or harmed and so he can soften. For me, this certainly poses a situation of living on the edge with the development of my metta practice.
One of the things that has helped me the most in dealing with people who in some way or another feel harmful or hurtful or just very abrasive, some, some kind of situation with a person where it's difficult to actually stay in a balanced place and stay with feelings of metta. What's helped me the most is just taking a moment or two to really look at them. To drop down from the personality level and the the level of how they're acting. Because in that moment of dropping down and just looking really openly, what always becomes apparent is the level of suffering that's producing that kind of action. Why are people, why do people act in harmful ways? If they were happy, they would not be doing that. That's not the manifestation of a happy, loving heart. And so it's always coming out of some pain. Mostly we get so caught in and in a way it's natural in our reaction to their behavior that we don't see that. If we can drop down, and it really can come just from looking at them, because it's usually very obvious. What I found was that when I see the suffering, when I really connect with the suffering that's producing the pain, I stop taking the actions to be so paramount. And it's much easier and and quite spontaneous to actually start feeling compassion for the suffering. It's like we don't buy in on the level of the action. If we're not buying in, they're just doing what they're doing. And they may continue or not, but we're approaching it from a different level. And a level in which our hearts can stay open to the compassion. It allows us the space then to, to, address, to address what the real problem is. The real problem is not the behavior. The real problem is the suffering. And if we see that, just... You know, in some way, we might actually feel an opening to relate to the person on that level. And that's very delicate, because often the person is not even aware of all the suffering that's there. But it's really putting us on the wavelength of the root of the problem, rather than responding you know, in a reactive way to something that's just a symptom. And it takes a lot of composure. It takes a lot of poise not to be reactive when a harmful energy is coming at us. And it is a good practice. It really keeps us right on the edge of what we're able to open to. Someone is on the path of enlightenment 
Will successive reincarnations be indicative of that? Will each incarnation be more evolved than the past? I hope so. (laughs) (laughs) But I think it also depends sort of on the on the level or the depth of our understanding. You know, if if we've planted I'm not quite sure the right metaphor here. I don't know if we if we've planted a big gray tree of wisdom. I think that is actually going to stand us in good stead from life to life. If we've planted just kind of a little seedling that's very vulnerable, then in different circumstances, either of this life or of future lives, if the circumstances of our lives are not supportive, that may be easily uprooted. Which is why in all of the traditions of Buddhism, there is so much emphasis placed on taking advantage of this precious human birth and the circumstances in all of our lives which has connected us to practice because it's very rare. There are very few people on this planet even who have taken this precious human birth who are interested or have the opportunity to really work at purifying their minds. So some of there's something very extraordinary happening when people find themselves drawn and interested in this. It's to use the time of one's life very well, to plant these seeds really deeply so they're not easily uprooted. And then I think we do evolve from life to life. Just two stories which I particularly like a lot. One of them I mentioned in the group yesterday or today. It was a story of a monk uh, in the Buddhist time who was doing the walking meditation. He was really a diligent monk. And he was just really was committed to liberation. That was his, what his life was about. He was walking and walking, lifting, moving, placing. And in the middle of one step, he died. And he was reborn in the heaven worlds, taking the next step. (laughs) He took a few more steps and got enlightened. (laughs) Which leads me to believe that we actually (laughs) do carry it when the seeds are strong, when, they, when the wisdom is strong. This, this is another little sideline. Uh, it just particularly appeals to me. <laughs> it's the end of one of the books of Mahasi Sayadaw, who was really the head of this whole lineage of Vipassana teaching the way we do it. He died recently. He'd been a great, great meditation master and also scholar. And that was his great strength was that 
he combined the two and so wrote with tremendous depth and profundity about the Dharma always with reference to the experience of meditation. And so he just kind of brought those two threads together. At the end of one of his little booklets, he said, he was always encouraging people to practice for enlightenment, to practice for freedom. Because that's really the highest perfection. He said, even if one doesn't reach that in this lifetime, if one has well practiced creating the very wholesome good karma of practice, very often one is reborn in the deva realms, in in these higher realms. And he said, at first, when beings are reborn in those realms, they're so busy kind of making friends and hanging out (laughs) and enjoying the pleasures of the heaven realms, they forgot, actually, the practice that they've done in the past. But at a certain point, it's like he says, they remember. You know, because they have, those beings have the ability to look back on their past lives and so they see, oh yeah, I, I did all this practice and it reawakens in them you know, this dharma energy. He says, in those realms, because the mind and body are so purified, so refined, the beings in those realms are bodies of light. Not, and so there's no, not dealing with pain and aches. And, and the intelligence is very refined. Once that remembrance of practice is reawakened, enlightenment comes very quickly. I like that thought. (laughs) (laughs) It's not that we should postpone it until then, but just in case we don't completely finish. (laughs) Okay, maybe one more. Um, There were a lot of questions about just how to do the phrases. Maybe I'll try to just do a few of those. Will you please repeat the phrases for equanimity? All beings, or oneself, all beings are the heirs of their own karma. Their happiness or unhappiness depends on their actions, not upon my wishes. Another question was, can we drop the pronouns in that? All beings are the heirs of their karma. Unhappiness and happiness depends on actions. I think that's fine. It's just to get the sense that there is a lawfulness to how things are unfolding. I've been saying the metta phrases followed by the equanimity phrases. Is that okay? Or should I only use the equanimity phrases alone? Um, I think it's better to uh, focus on one or the other during a particular time period. Do the metta or do the equanimity. Um, It'll just give it more uh, cohesiveness and greater strength. Could you please explain the mechanics of how this equanimity is developed in relation to the phrases and people? The equanimity is not particularly towards the phrases, although that will also be there. It's really the phrases evoking the feeling of equanimity towards people, towards all beings. So it's concentrating very deeply on the meaning of the phrase 
And out of that connection with the meaning, this sense of equanimity comes. And so that determines or that conditions how we're relating to beings from that place. Maybe just this one last one. When we're saying, may beings be happy, what should our referent be? That is, should we think of a time we've been happy and imagine it? Um, I think one could do that very uh, sporadically and at the beginning. Mostly, it's just to say the phrases of happy or safe or peaceful loving, whatever phrase you're using. And just let the phrase, let the word resonate intuitively in the heart and mind. We know what these words mean. They're not esoteric meanings. And it's just to let the word sit there. The meaning will reverberate out with greater and greater clarity and subtlety as our mind becomes stiller. And so in some way, it's embodying the actual feeling of being happy, but not not getting too discursive about it, because that breaks the concentration again. And kind of trust. Use the words for each category and each person that resonate for you with that being. Somebody wrote a question about feeling difficulty of wishing happiness for animals. Didn't seem like the right word. Fine, use another word. Get the phrase right for each being because that's what's going to generate the feeling. There's a lot. I mean, this is an immense journey. Use this time. It's really a precious time. you've, You've given yourselves this gift of a time to cultivate these powerful states, these powerful, wholesome states of mind. Take care with the time. Respect your practice. Respect your own efforts so that you use it well. Thank you. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.